And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. race is on and the inaugural Tuscan Grand Prix at Mugello brought red flags good racing and recriminations aplenty after just 12 drivers made it to the end of a race that took 2 hours and 19 minutes to complete up front it was a familiar story as Lewis Hamilton took his 6th win of the season while Mercedes teammate Valtteri Bottas ended up disappointed again I'm Ed Straw and joining me to look back on the race are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes now, Mark, first and foremost, this was a Grand Prix with a crowd, wasn't it, for the first time this year? So I presume it was the normal Italian F1 crowd who mobbed anyone unfortunate enough to be wearing a red shirt, or was it all a little bit more calm and socially distanced? Yeah, you had to, you had to look hard to see where there were. It was just a little selection of the, um, the, the Ferrari fan club and they were, uh, had their own little um, bit that was distanced from everyone else. And uh, yeah, I think it was 3,000 3, of them there. Um, but they were spread out. So, yeah, um, at least it's uh, marked, a, 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 you know, a, hopefully a, a little tick on the on the bedposts on the, on the return back to normality. But I, 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 let's see. And Scott Mitchell, you were watching from afar. See, it's great to see Mugello, isn't it, having a, a Grand Prix. It's the first time there's been F1 cars racing there, not just World Championship, but for anything. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's great. I think there was a lot of... Uh, there's a very romantic view of Mugello before uh, before this race, and I think we were all looking forward to what the cars would look like on track, and then the spectacle of qualifying. And I think I probably speak for the majority when I say I didn't have huge uh, hopes for the for the race itself. But I think from start to finish, I've really enjoyed this weekend. It's just nice to have a track where pretty much anywhere they are on track, it's quite enjoyable to watch it. Um, it was brilliant having a circuit with those that kind of runoff grass and gravel that really really punished drivers for even just running wide not just crashing but just just going off and then i also think that the characteristics of the circuit had a very very important role in the slightly slightly uh chaotic race that we saw at times and the fact that it was actually quite an engaging grand prix from start to finish so yeah absolute full marks to Mugello. what an f1 debut well, people are not going to forget this race, are they? That's for sure. So there's lots for us to delve into. Now, Scott, I'm going to suggest before we get into what I'm going to call a race proper, we probably need to tackle that big talking point, which was the accident at the first restart at the end of lap six. It's led to 12 drivers being warned for their part in causing it, but Carlos Sainz, Nicholas Latifi, Kevin Magnussen and Antonio Giovinazzi out of the race. So it's fair to say this was the big talking point after the race among drivers and teams, wasn't it? Well, it was the big talking point from the moment it happened. So I think uh, obviously during the red flag uh, period that it triggered, 
it was a subject of a lot of attention. There were some quite strong comments, I think, even being issued by the drivers over the team radio as it happened. It's, uh, I should never underestimate a racing driver's ability to get on the radio while they're in the middle of a massive crash, which which I think it was at least Nicholas Latifi did. I think he was on the radio while his car was still being hit, which is quite impressive. Um, but yeah, it, obviously it wiped out four four cars and it ended up in this with these 12 warnings. It was all a legacy of, uh, well, two things really. Um, the drivers and the FIA are sort of at odds over what the responsibility is, but comes down to what the drivers feel is the uh, the safety car lights coming out too late so that, uh, in this case, race the race leader was Valtteri Bottas. So he basically then has to back the cars up on the start-finish straight. He can't do it before the final corner and then blitz it and, and, and gap the cars behind. So he basically keeps a slow pace all the way up to the start-finish line, which is the second point because that's quite far down at Mugello. So it's sort of this unique situation uh which then just basically led to a bunch of drivers getting caught out it was like that accordion effect where the field sort of like compresses and then goes apart again and then compresses again and you have cars all over the place it just becomes a bit of a um it becomes a bit of a nightmare to be honest um predictable i thought uh and it seems that a few of the drivers thought it was predictable as well and yet here we are <laughs> predictable as it may have been it was still allowed to play out and happen and yeah, it was well, i think we were lucky that no one got hurt to be honest because quite a frightening incident I've heard lots of people being blamed and the finger being pointed at them. Some people blame Valtteri Bottas, obviously. Others blame some of the drivers going quick towards the back. Are you going to really heavily point the finger at anyone or do you just accept that because of those circumstances you've talked about, it has to just be uh, everyone's responsible and it was circumstances? Uh, I I thought looking at various onboards, I thought that you know, there were a couple like Kvyat and, and Russell that were maybe sort of offenders because they left quite a big gap in front of them. And then they sort of, that that was it then. That was when they interpreted the race to be starting. So they gun, gunned it on the throttle and then they had to back out of it again because they realized that it hadn't. And I felt that they were arguably the two or two of two of the biggest offenders. I felt that, I thought that Kvyat was the first one really to do it in that, in that way. But the FIA have ruled that no one was predominantly to blame because there were 12 drivers that all their actions are interlinked and you've got these other circumstances at play as well. So it was just a an incident where you can probably point to any one of the drivers that have been warned and say it was your fault and then they'll turn around and say that they were responding to somebody else. Yeah, there's a heavy ripple effect, isn't there? What do you think, Mark? Obviously, there was some pointing the finger at the FIA's desire to have the safety car lights going off too late do you think that had that been more conventional and they had more warning this wouldn't have happened so does that the blame lie in race control i think it does on this occasion i mean not it usually doesn't they, they usually do very good but i think on this occasion they, it goes back to uh Baku a couple of years ago where they had that great restart where um was it where Vettel hit the back of hamilton basically the the great big gap there that you have after being released from the safety car resulted in this, um, you know, the, the leader being very, very vulnerable down to the first corner. And they liked this. They thought it was a, it made for a good spectacle. And it's true that you do see very little, usually very little position change on a restart. And so they were wanting to spice it up a bit. And so they have been getting later and later in how late they turn the lights off. Now that's significant because... 
conventionally when you turn them off, you know, well earlier in, on the lap, the leader is allowed to drop more than 10 car lengths back from the safety car. <clears throat> when the safety car has its lights on, he has to remain 10 cars or less with, within the back of the safety car. As soon as you put the lights out, you can drop back and create the space for yourself to get a jump on, it, on your pursuers. But if you turn that light out so late in the lap, the leader can't do that. And so in the, with the layout that we have at Jello, as Scott said, there's a great big gap between the safety car line, which is pretty much at the beginning of the straight, and the start-finish line, which is nearly a kilometre later. It's 800 metres um, later. The only way of um, defending yourself is to do what he did, which is just crawl up all the way up there, compress the field that way, and then go when you get the start-finish line, which is nearly at the end of the straight. Because if you don't do that as the leader, you're going to get slipstreamed. You're going to get just you're going to be toast. You're probably going to get passed by at least one car. So the teams knew this, or certainly the teams that were likely to be up the front in this situation had already worked out that's what they would do in this situation and instructed the drivers accordingly. They'd watched situations in the F3 and the F2 race there and they had observed that the only time the leader was able to defend himself was when he did exactly that. When the leader hadn't done that, when he just done it conventionally, he was toast. So they, they knew this. And I think it was pointed out to them, but they, 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 in trying to balance off the, the spectacle with the safety, I think they got it a little bit wrong on this occasion and, and got away with it, thankfully. Um, and hopefully uh, it will um, influence their, their future judgment on it. Yeah, well, there's certainly going to be lots of talking about it and this this will have to be tackled. I'll have to come up with some way to prevent it. And I, and I do feel sorry for some of the guys down the back because they end up looking like lunatics, don't they, when you've got someone like Giovinazzi just piling into cars. But obviously, because the effect is multiplied as you go down the order to everyone reacting and then you get a bunch of people basically stop. There were sort of cars three wide at one point. There's inevitably this intersection where the, the reaction time of the people at the back to inputs that have happened ages before they, they just can't do anything so you end up with this uh this unfortunate uh unfortunate kind of uh, effect but it could have been a lot more serious when you get cars going into the going into the back of each other obviously there's the the very robust rear crash structure there as well so you're, you're hitting something quite hard it, it's sort of serious business especially when we saw cars being flicked up and you know bit, big old accident wasn't it yeah, you see uh, you know, the, the Alpha up in the air there with its rear wheel very close to the cockpit of uh, the Pifi's car and um, Sainz was thrown up there as well. Yeah, you're in the lap of the gods then. So, yeah, it was just, it was just luck really. Yeah, we have got some, you know, these super effective um, active safety with the, the halo and the, uh, the crash structure, but um, it doesn't make you indestructible. Yeah, which is exactly why creating situations at restarts to spice up the show, as it were, perhaps going a little bit too far in, in terms of the, the, the danger created, then maybe you need to have a bit of a bit of more of a serious uh, think about it. But it, it was uh, it, it was something that, that played a big part in defining the race. So I guess it's going to, one of the big reasons why we're going to why we're going to remember the the race at Magello if that's the only one that we that we ever have. But I suppose in terms of solutions, they're going to have to come up with a point where the safety car has to turn its lights off by on a lap or something in order to give the necessary warning so that if they that they can't push it late. I guess there aren't actually that many tracks where this is that big a problem because Mugello, as you said, has a an unusual configuration 
And there's a lot of other tracks where there's a more of a natural flow that, well, less of a natural flow almost. It's a bit more stop-start, so it would be easier to implement. Yeah, I think probably there's one in Baku or the two obvious ones where you could get a situation. Yeah, well, that's something for the FIA to uh, delve into in the uh, in the future, and I'm sure we're going to hear plenty of talk about that by the time we get to Sochi for the next race in Russia. But there was a race going on around that. That, of course, was the... The first restart after the safety car. So let's have a look up front, Mark, because this was another one of those races where Valtteri Bottas flattered to deceive. He didn't quite have enough for Hamilton. Familiar story, fastest in the three practice sessions, fastest in Q1, and then Hamilton nudged ahead in Q2. Then he got pole. Bottas was ahead in the race at one stage. It did seem, though, at the time, he was destined for victory, though, didn't it? There were little glimpses of it. I mean, we didn't get to see how he, if he could have got pole or not because he was denied his final Q3 run by the yellow flags for Ocon spin. So he still had that lap to go and he was you know, within sniffing distance of Hamilton then anyway. So he may have started from pole, but as it was, um, he made a better start from the, the original start than Hamilton was leading anyway. So, you know, once, once you're in the lead in a car, pretty much the same if in a the normal running of a race without safety cars and things like that, and and a, you know, a team that doesn't allow them to use you know, one against the other in terms of uh, favourable strategies or whatever, then yeah, it would have been quite difficult for Valtteri to have lost that race. But of course, um, we got the safety car and then we give Lewis another bite of the cherry and he did it on the restart of turn one just opted for the outside, you know, the car was sliding around his correct noster as he went around Valtteri's outside. Valtteri was just a little bit passive, you know, just not very hard. He, he didn't treat Lewis as if he was a competitor. He treated him as if it, as if he was a teammate. And this is a guy who's supposed to be fighting for the World Championship. It was a bit disappointing. Yeah, we do see that a lot with Bottas, though, don't we? It's, it's one of those things, I think, you can work at it a little bit, but it's either in your nature to be the one who's really really combative wheel to wheel or you're not and I think Bottas is almost too gentlemanly in those situations sometimes and it's quite hard to force yourself to be something you're you're not in those pressure situations unfortunately but I would say ultimately although he didn't get that second run in Q3 ultimately had he been quicker than Hamilton on the first runs in Q3 he'd have been on pole so you know he had equal opportunity should we say they both had one run in that session so one of those things but Scott there was a little bit of uh, of confusion because obviously Bottas was requesting to go opposite to Hamilton in terms of uh, the tyre choice and that kind of thing. And then I think they ended up on the same tyres at the next stop. Didn't they? So what, what did Toto Wolff have to say about the whole thing? Uh, well, it was more that Bottas wanted to go... Uh, it's, he wanted to go offset, obviously, because he knew that in a straight fight it was going to be very difficult to overtake Hamilton. But the problem was he was having... Um, he was having a problem with the with the tires in in that he was starting to suffer some vibrations. I think he said the front left was pretty was basically gone and was uh, struggling in a not dissimilar fashion to at Silverstone, where obviously those um, those those front left punches occurred for for Bottas, Hamilton, and Carlos Sainz. So Mercedes had to pit Bottas first as a precaution. I think by this point Lewis had stretched into like a six or seven second lead. Um, so Bottas didn't have the option to uh, to go opposite to to Hamilton because in that situation I think you need to uh, you need to react to what Hamilton's doing. I don't think 
Bottas can't dictate what tyres Mercedes put Hamilton on. There's the second car. So as soon as he comes into the pit first, he he forfeits his opportunity to 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 go and do something different to, to, to Lewis. And as soon as that happened, it was basically locked in. They were in um, stay off the curbs mode again. Uh, but unlike in, if you remember Austria, it was all about gearbox sensors and electrical noise and stuff like this. And here it was just being a bit cautious, didn't want to... Uh, um, trigger a puncture or something like that. So it wasn't that the Mercedes went into no, you're not allowed to race mode, but it was basically can you race but without driving too aggressively, which I'm sure Formula One drivers take take very kindly to. Uh, but yeah, it, it wasn't like a controversy or something. I don't think it was uh, like Mercedes trying to stitch up Bottas and deny him the crack at Hamilton that he wanted. It was just the way races play the race played out. He didn't have the uh, opportunity that he, he was uh, he was looking for. Yeah, I think. Um... The, the the tire problem was very serious. It was a level of vibration. It turned out it was from the right front. Um, it was a level of vibration in, in excess of what they'd seen at the first Silverstone just before the tire blew. So they were very, very aware that this thing is liable to go at any moment. Basically, the, the problem was where, um, because there was very little dig, surprisingly, around the, this track. And we'll come on to that later because it's quite an interesting um, outcome, but they, so the problem then becomes where you just wear the tire out, and the, the the first signs of that are the vibration because it doesn't wear evenly across the the, the tread; it wears more on one than another side. And as you get this increasing mismatch, you get an increase in vibration, and that's usually the sign that it's about to go. So they couldn't they couldn't leave him out there. Um, so he he had to he had to be brought in immediately. He lost those. I think he was one and a half seconds behind, and then that just ballooned up to like five or six seconds within about three laps, and that was when it was you know on its on its last legs. And so they brought him in, and at that point, when you've got that concern, you're not going to mess about anymore. They just stuck him on a set of hards, and they put Lewis on the same a lap later. And Lewis didn't want to come in at that point because he said my tyres are fine, and they just said no, Valtteri already for. Safety issues, so we're bringing you in next, and that, that was it. It was neutralised. The tyre thing never, it never developed into a competition between them because of what had happened with um, Valtteri's right front. Well, let's quickly talk a little bit about the tyres and why it was unusual characteristics. Obviously, Mugello, lots of long, high-energy corners. It is a high-energy circuit in terms of the demand on the tyres. It's actually closest to Silverstone in terms of the the, the stresses it puts on the on the tyres. And yet, as you say. The deg wasn't much of a problem. It was wear limited. We didn't see, you know, the blistering we saw at the second Silverstone race. There weren't any of those things you sort of can go wrong with the tyres. Generally, weren't. Yeah, and it was very interesting, and a lot, it was. It took pretty much everyone by surprise. Um, even after the race, it, engineers were saying, "I really don't understand why, for sure." But there are a couple of theories which I, I think. Um, a lot of water. One is that it's a very old school track surface with very open pores, a bit like Suzuka. And when you have the very smooth modern surfaces, it doesn't um, penetrate very, very far into the tyre's tread. And so you're putting all the load on a very thin part of the, on a very, it's not, it's not penetrating very deep. So that, that, Top layer is doing all the work, if you like, and it, it overheats. Um, and that's when you start to get the, the, the thermal deg where you just lose performance, even though there's plenty of tread on the tire. So that wasn't happening. So that, that's 
could well be because of the, um, the, the more open nature of the, the, the track's surface. And um, I did speak with Ross Braun about this and asked for his observation. He said it was something that they very much um, were, were looking at. And um, in the future, when circuits are resurfacing, they're, they're definitely going to be looking at um, recreating a more old school type of surface. So it could be that this problem that Pirelli's been um, getting the blame for is, is not entirely Pirelli's fault. And it may be just the modern, the modern surfaces that um, have sort of been exacerbating the problem. Um, but the other thing is that there's very little braking at Magellan. So you're not really combining lateral load with braking loads, and maybe this is having a bigger effect than had been realized in driving the thermal deck, that, that overlapping of the longitudinal with the lateral. Um, you, there's, only, there's only six braking points, even though there's 15 corners, there's only, there's only six braking points. There's also fast and flowing. The, the, the lowest gear you're in is fourth gear on the whole lap. So maybe this was another reason why the tires were... Um, just being allowed to breathe a little bit, even though they were being loaded up laterally massively, um, they were quite happy there. Yeah, it's a good point because even though it's it's quite a lot of uh, of lateral load with traction events, but not the not the braking events. So yeah, that, there's, there's something I'll be able to to learn from there. But ultimately, this was a, a race in which tyres also played a role, and Valtteri Bottas was on the wrong side of it again, and, and that sort of sums it up, doesn't it? He's just a little bit. A step behind Lewis Hamilton in some of those areas, as we said before, Hamilton's an all-time great. Hard work for Valtteri uh, Bottas. Before we move on to the rest of it, Scott, we should just talk about the the man most likely to challenge them, Max Verstappen. He had all sorts of dramas before the race, and then obviously he was he was taken out by the uh, the Raikkonen Gasly Grosjean collision behind, sort of catching up with him uh, on the run to turn two. So what what actually was going on with Verstappen engine problem wise or some other related problem he had well he actually had three issues because um the issue that we saw when he he, he reported a he put he reported a concern on his way to the grid uh in one of his reconnaissance laps and you you would have seen the 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 frantic work that was going on on sort of like the left rear part of the car or the left hand side of the car with a swarm of mechanics around it but um it wasn't an end that wasn't actually a honda issue as um as seemed to be sort of indicated at the, at the time, it was a separate issue that Red Bull were trying to solve. Um, but then when Max got away and started his uh, his formation lap, it seems that over the course of the formation lap, there was something that emerged on the data and sort of indicated it'd be a problem. But Max only experienced that when he put his foot down at the start and got a really decent initial launch was just about to blast past Lewis Hamilton, take second and maybe challenge Bottas. And then basically in the second phase of the start, the uh, it was a bit of a GP2 engine, unfortunately. Um, he, he sort of went nowhere. Loads of cars went past him. He was in the midfield by turn one. And then, yeah, then issue number three strikes as he comes out of uh, the first corner and goes into the chicane, breaks, minds his own business and then gets absolutely rear-ended because three cars well three drivers was it uh Raikkonen Gasly and Grosjean acted like they'd never been in a Formula One race in the midfield before and basically all just based pretty much just charged into each other um which uh of, of which Verstappen was just a completely innocent victim he was I was riding on board of his on board at the time and 
so I had his team radio open and I've never, I've, I've, I don't think I've heard Max re- react that way in, in a really long time. The, when, the bad start to begin with that he basically screamed down the radio. And then when he got pitched into the gravel, he, he swore instantly. Um, I can't remember the exact words that, that he used, but he basically just said that it was an absolute, uh, absolute shambles and that's what you get when you're surrounded by those sorts of uh sorts of people basically so yeah he was uh out on the spot but he was he was uh expecting to retire anyway because of the engine issue that had arisen off the line so yeah it was pretty miserable 15 20 seconds of the tuscan grand prix really for him yeah and the second consecutive retirement so he's 80 points down in the championship. Now, I don't think we really thought he was a serious contender, but there's always the chance if you hang on in there. But he's now thoroughly not hung on in there through probably little fault of his own. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's Verstappen. Yeah, a bad, uh, a bad couple of weekends in Italy for him. But, Scott, while it's not been a foregone conclusion that when one Red Bull driver hits trouble, the other one will step into the breach, Alex Albon did manage to do that by taking third place in the race that Max Verstappen would have uh, probably been destined for with a with a healthy car finally Albon's first breakthrough F1 podium and of course he had to make it hard for himself didn't he dropping for seventh at the first restart he's he's not willing to do this the easy way is he no he um he he made properly hard work of this I was thinking I think we were all thinking before the race right Mugello is a track that's difficult to overtake Red Bull's got Clearly the second fastest car here, like big bu- big buffer to the cars behind. He's starting fourth. He hasn't he hasn't biffed qualifying. This is it. This is the boring race he needs. And then he just finds himself sort of mugged uh, at, at the start. He's, he gets a bit of a reprieve because Verstappen's fallen back. So he's sort of like, okay, here's an opportunity. Slips back further. I think he was down to seventh at one point. Gets back up. And then when you've got like that final restart, he's fourth, Ricardo's third, and you're thinking, right, here you go. This is your chance. Good launch, good first run. Just make it easy for yourself. Nope, he spends the first lap of the restart trying to fight off uh, the remaining racing point and actually make fourth his own. In the end, the overtakes that he pulled and the way he got his elbows out to salvage his drive was was fantastic. But it's like, it's kind of like... Um, you, your own worst enemy in that situation, Alex, because you're having to overcome hurdles that shouldn't be in your way. Uh, but he did a he did a really good job, I think, to 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 make the most of the car that was under him, and actually, in the end, score a relatively comfortable podium over the last sort of ten laps or so. It was pretty easy to to sort of just keep Ricardo at arm, arm's length once he was was gone. And yeah, I was happy for him. I think he's uh, he's had some had, had some bad luck. He hasn't driven great at times, but. He has been. This has been coming. This isn't out of the blue. The last three events, there's been market improvement in what he's been doing. We've just been waiting for him to actually execute a full weekend and have a trouble-free race and fair play to him. After, as we say, making it hard for himself, that's exactly what he did. Yeah, well, I spoke to him on Saturday night after qualifying, and he said that he felt the progress has been there. It hasn't just just hasn't quite come together. And although even then qualifying wasn't perfect he was at least up in fourth place so let's hope that that just eases some of the uh some of the pressure he doesn't have to keep grasping for that uh, that first podium hopefully the first of many for Alex Albon uh, Mark there were two other drivers in that battle for third at various times with both Lance Stroll and Ricardo holding the position for a time let's have a look at Ricardo first because he was passed on the I think the 51st of 59 laps so has he got any reason to be disappointed this wasn't that long-awaited 
revived Renault Works team podium? No, not really. Um, he was uh, he was out of position, really, being being as high as third in the first place. Um, Alex was in a much faster car, and I think he, he understood that. He didn't really fight it when Alex came past him. He was, you know, around the outside of turn one, and he didn't even crowd him out because it was inevitable that he was going to get him somewhere. So um, he just let him go and just concentrate on making his race as clean as possible because at that point, Perez was still within striking distance. Um, and so, yeah, he was he was just concentrating on keeping it clean and keeping that gap back to Perez. So, no, I think that was pretty much the maximum result um, that, that uh, could have been expected from, from him, really. It was, uh, it was a pretty immaculate performance all around. Yeah, it's just a little bit of a shame that he hadn't been able to string the lap together in qualifying because that one Q3 run he had had a little bit of uh, a little bit of a moment, well, a couple of moments actually, and just he felt he could have been fifth, but ended up down in in eighth place. I guess we should briefly mention in passing Esteban Ocon, who didn't even make the first standing restart, should we say, because he he had uh, rear brake problems that manifested themselves uh, early on in the race and under the safety car, so. One of those weekends for Ocon because he was actually looking pretty handy compared to Ricardo. And then whether this was related to the fact he was just pushing a little bit too hard, he had that spin at the end of Q3 that caused this uh, these yellow flags. I think there's some promising signs there for Ocon, but still, it's been a really tough first half of the season for, for him, hasn't it, Mark? Just not really delivering what we know he can. He's just not quite at Daniel's pace, is he? And this is the closest he's been in, in the dry. Um, he's quicker in the wet at Austria too, but um, this is a, yeah, the closest he's got. I think he's making progress, but I've yet to be convinced that he's a driver of Ricciardo's calibre. Well, there aren't many of those around, are there? Certainly. So uh, there'd be no shame in that. Now, Lance Stroller mentioned he was up there in third at one stage. Ricardo undercut his way past him. There was a brief hope at one stage that Kvyat might hold up Ricardo enough for Stroll to edge back ahead. Hence, they left him out a little bit longer before that first stop, but it wasn't to be. But then Stroll had the the crash at Zerobiata uh, 2, the fast right-hander, wasn't it? Now, we don't seem to have a definitive answer from the team on this, but there was clearly something came off that appeared to come off the front left, and there seemed to be some kind of tyre problem as a result. It's not really clear exactly what the sequence of events was, other than it doesn't appear to have been Lance Stroll's fault. No, that's, that's right. Um, he was um, he was pushing hard at the time that it happened, but it just, it just went very, very suddenly. And he wasn't, you know, he didn't have a wheel on the gravel or anything like that, it, 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 which is you know, what we assumed initially. Um, but no, it just seems something had gone wrong. He felt it was a puncture. Um, it was difficult to tell when you looked at the wreckage of the car because the left rear was flat, but it may have been flat as a result of hitting the barrier, we don't know. Um, so, yeah, just unfortunate. It was one of those things, um, probably tyre-related. Yeah, there was definitely stuff flying around anyway, so ultimately not his fault. He was holding, what, fourth place at the time, chasing Ricardo, wasn't he? So uh, and he also had Albon behind him, so interesting little battle that was uh, that was playing out there. But a reasonable showing for Racing Point. We should briefly, before we move on, mention the fact that they had a few upgrades on Stroll's car, didn't they, Mark, with the interesting brake ducts that, uh, that caught the eye, as well as a few other changes that didn't quite go in the Mercedes direction. Yeah, the brake ducts, uh, so they've, they've ditched the, uh, the 2019 uh, front brake ducts, and they've um, come up with their own brake ducts, which look remarkably like the 2020 Mercedes brake ducts. Um, so <laughs> it's just 
but no, the, 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 the regulation, the, the clarification that came out as a result of the protests and appeals was that um, they supplied through 2021, so they're just plowing on with the original plan um, in regard with this year's car. And they clearly take inspiration still from, from Mercedes, and they've been looking very hard at this year's car, obviously. Um, but in other areas, notably in the side pod uh, shaping, they've um, de developed in their own direction. It looks more like a Red Bull philosophy, what they've done. Um, so they, 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 you know, they've taken that W10 as the starting point and um, developed in, in their own direction, which is what they said they'd always do. And the positive thing is it does seem to have worked because we saw in the race, Stroll, although he qualified behind Perez, I think Perez had just done a better job of getting what he could out of the car, in qualifying before Stroll missed out on his, his second run anyway. Perez only had one run because he only had one set of tyres. But we did see a marked step difference in pace between Perez and Stroll in the race, consistent with this two to maybe three tenths that the team thinks it's found. Yes, I mean, they, run for run, Stroll, Stroll's car looked quicker all through the weekend. Um, he got through Q1 and Q2 with just one set of tyres. Sergio needed a, a couple of sets to be sure each time, which is why he only had one set left for Q3 and Lance had two. So, um, yeah, it, just, it was just clearly a, um, a, quite an effective upgrade, um, which is what they'd expected. It tallied with what they saw in the tunnel. And, of course, the, the periphery of this uh, of this battle for the for the top six, or at the bottom of it, Lando Norris finished sixth behind Perez with Ricardo fourth. There isn't actually much to say about Norris because he started 11th, he... He drove around. He got he got ahead of Ocon at the start, and then he just picked up places when people hit trouble. Perfectly solid drive, but just not much to talk about there. Which means Scott, we can now move on to AlphaTauri because last week we were talking about an AlphaTauri win and Daniel Kvyat's seventh place in comparison to that win. Doesn't sound much, but it's a pretty good return for for the team. But as for Gasly, he went from hero to zero, didn't he? Because while you uh, you said when you were talking about Verstappen who was taken out in the crash. You had those three, Raikkonen and Grosjean and Gasly battling. It was Gasly who went into a gap that was never going to stay there and really created that collision. Yeah, it was just um, it was just a disastrous <laughs> disastrous weekend when it mattered for Pierre, who'd been super quick. I think he'd been no lower than eighth through the free practice sessions. I think he was actually fifth, eighth and fifth in, the, in free practice and was in really good shape going into qualifying. And then um, combination of... A combination of some uh, some setup, uh, a setup misjudgment, um, both with the car and then the energy recovery system as well. The deployment of the battery he ran out of um, he ran out of charge basically um, a couple of hundred meters too too early, uh, which which cost him on the run to the line. So he got knocked out in Q one, which is um, you know P one one week out in Q one the next, and unlike Monza where. I think he went from, I think it was a 10th on the grid to win, aided by some uh, strategy shenanigans. He never even had a chance to uh, make make most of uh, the, the chaos of today's race because he was, as you say, Ed, primarily responsible for the uh, for the first bit of chaos that actually started it all because obviously safety cars breathe safety cars, don't they? And it was this incident that triggered it all at the very beginning. Yeah, I think he was just so determined to make up for what happened in qualifying that he... He didn't really think because he, he did move into that gap at the exit of turn one between Raikkonen and Grosjean. It just went wrong uh, for all of them as a result. So, yeah, unfortunate for Gasly. But the point you made about the, the struggles they had in qualifying, this is an interesting wider point about going to Mugello because 
obviously things like the Urs strategy for qualifying and how you chase the, the evolving track during qualifying. They're things that teams build up a lot of experience of. And and Alpha Tauri was actually one of the teams that struggled a bit because they didn't quite go with the amount of front end they needed in order to get the best out of the uh, the car as, as the, the track kind of gripped up. So that's a little footnote to what visiting a new and unfamiliar track adds because they don't have all that historic data to, to rely on. So it just creates a little bit more of a window for people to, to fall out of, as it were, in terms of just not quite getting things right. But for Kvyat, seventh place. I mean, it's a bit like Norris, actually, his race, because he he started behind Norris and he sort of finished behind him and didn't do a great deal in the race, but at least kept out of trouble and and banks his best uh, best result of the season. So that's positive for Kvyat, at least, who's uh, sort of the uh, the support act uh, at AlphaTauri these days. Well, I should apologise at this point because I have been a bit remiss so far because we've waited far too long to talk about the real star of this show, which was Ferrari. It was its anniversary weekend, the 1,000th World Championship race start, allegedly. Uh, Charles Leclerc, 8th. Sebastian Vettel, 10th. Mark Hughes, that's a brilliant return for them on their uh, their birthday, if we want to call it that, celebrations. Yeah, um, it was better than Monza and Spa, I guess, but... It was looking at times as though they were going to steal a result. I mean, Leclerc was the beneficiary of the yellow flag in Q3. He did, he did wonderfully well just to get the thing into Q3 at all. Um, and then he was, he was going to be the beneficiary, because, or he was the beneficiary of the yellow flag because there were several cars didn't get there running. And he, he ended up in a very respectable grid place that flattered the car. Um, and he was running an early third place, but the car was never going to have the pace to, to hang on to that. And he was, uh, he was a sitting duck and it was picked off and knocked further and further back and then it ate its tyres and then he did an extra stop and, and, and. So, yeah, where they ended up was about where they were on merit. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Charles Leclerc, you look at him and you think, actually, he did a really good job in the race. And he still came home eighth in a race where a load of people crashed out. So... That tells you how horrendous it's been for for Ferrari ultimately, but I, I know we shouldn't be surprised. But I guess we hope for a little bit more, given the uh, the performance sensitivities of this track. But yeah, what a what a horrible weekend uh, for them. And of course, there was a whole sideshow of Vettel announcing he was off to to Aston Martin uh, next year at the start of the uh, the event. And of course, if anyone wants to listen to us talking about that a bit, myself and Mark had a chat on a mini podcast, an extra episode that we released last Thursday. So if you want to hear about Vettel and Sergio Perez and uh, Aston Martin, then head back to have a listen to that. Well, there was some good news for uh, for Ferrari because uh, Kimi Raikkonen picked up ninth place. Um, I know it's not much, Scott, for a driver who's had so much success, but, you know, it, it's the first points of the season for the old man of the grid, and it's quite good news for the team because it gives them a, an absolute stranglehold on that coveted eighth place in the Constructors' Championship. Now they've they've stockpiled four points. And it gave them another class Ferrari win as well because on track, Kimi Raikkonen did beat the two works cars. Obviously, he had the five-second penalty for the um, pit lane entry infringement, which dropped him to ninth on the road. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it will mean pretty much naff all to to, to Raikkonen. It'll be it's important to to Alpha because it means they'll get prize. They'll probably now get prize money for eighth instead of ninth or tenth in the championship. But to me, the big result um, or the big uh, takeaway from that result is it's just, it's just more of a more of an indictment of Ferrari's performance, isn't it? Like they're 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 
it's so off the pace. It's using it's it's slow. It's tight. It's unreliable. Vettel keeps having all. He's had like three problems in six or seven races now with the engine. Um, it's eating up its tires. It's slow in a straight line. It, it's I, I'm struggling to find any redeeming qualities about this car other than the fact that it had a nice tribute livery on it this weekend. Yeah, and even then it didn't really work because all it actually did was show why racing car colours have had to get a bit vibrant now in the uh, in the television era because it just looked like someone had turned down the colour. I, lo- I love the fact they did it and it was great, but it just didn't. It, it just looked like the colour had been washed out a little bit, unfortunately. So even that almost uh, didn't work, although I should encourage all teams to do uh, such livery experiments. And there was another classy little Vettel helmet special, wasn't there, with the... Um the sort of juxtaposition of the the old style uh, F1 car blueprint schematic type and then moulding round into a modern day sort of CAD type drawing and then sort of the combination of the two, the original Ferrari uh, logo on one side and then a modern day version like sort of split in two. So, but that's, yeah, it's about as good as Vettel's uh, <laughs> weekends at the moment. The highlights are how cool is his crash helmet design this weekend, which is uh, pretty unbecoming for a four-time world champion, but such is the situation that they find themselves in. Yeah, well, all credit to Ferrari for bringing back a bit of retro performance uh, in terms of lap times uh, for the, for, the, for this weekend. But yeah, it's, it's a shame because, yeah, it's just, I, I think the thing that, that, that gets me is yeah we know they've got an engine weakness we know they've got problems but they don't even seem to know how to how to get the best out of it do they mark it's just it's just not going well and and when they're finishing behind the lead alpha on the road as they did here and as they did in the final results the previous race that that almost means they can't have the, the get out of jail free card of the engine say oh great car terrible engine because it shows that there's wider problems doesn't it yeah, indeed, and I think I, I get the impression there are uh, all their development resources um, going towards next year and the year after, and um, next year particularly on the engine and the year after, of course, for the new formula. And I think there's just a, a sense of let's just get through this this nightmare of a season and um, look ahead. Yeah, that's actually the correct strategy, I would say. And in the past, Ferrari might have made the mistake of trying to salvage. I was going to say respectability, but I don't think they're even going to. Going to, going to get to that level even if they uh, ace development for the rest of the season but they are at least looking long term and strategically and to get there for for 2022 which the, the state of the of the hole they're in that is absolutely the the right decision uh now obviously that that was the minor point so we so it was uh, Leclerc eighth Raikkonen ninth and then Sebastian Vettel tenth and and the kind of almost the the whatever the opposite of a feel-good story of the race i was going to say tragedy but that's that's overdoing it a little bit was of course george russell for williams he was on course for points he basically had it in the bag and then there was that second red flag and then at the restart wheel spin he lost places and he went on to finish 11th that's uh, pretty gutting i spoke to george russell after and he he basically said well i did everything that we wanted to do at the start all the clutch positioning all the power everything was was correct but it, it just they just had wheel spin and obviously he made the point that they're not used to doing starts on different fuel levels which could have made a difference you know lighter car maybe a little bit less traction perhaps that explains the wheel spin but ultimately he'll be kicking himself when he because this was not only a golden opportunity for points but he'd basically done all the hard work so it's no surprise he gave out this sort of agonised howl after taking the chequered flag because he knew what he'd missed out on 
Yeah, I mean, it's going to come, isn't it? I'd be amazed if he, if he remains pointless um, through by the end of the season. But, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the high, standout moment for me for his weekend was when he um, he kept his foot in as, as the, the car was going through the gravel and he emerged out the other side to complete the lap and it was still faster than his teammate, keeping intact that 100% record. Um, that, that was quite a remarkable bit of uh, control, I thought. But, yeah, just... It's not quite there, is it? But it's at least it's fighting. <clears throat> it's fighting for those positions on merit, um, which is uh, um, massively better than where he was last year. So he is making progress. At least he can feel he's making progress. Yeah, and he actually had quite a good. Uh uh, the initial start sort of charged down the outside of the first corner, which got him some uh, places and kept out of trouble while various others were driving into each other. So, yeah, it, I mean, he said it was a very, very good race, but he you could tell he was really gutted that he'd, he'd missed out that because he, he felt he'd have had the the ninth place but for that. Although, in a way, he was slightly fortunate because as, as Raikkonen came past him and moved across him, Raikkonen did actually hit his front, his rear left into Russell's front right, which didn't do any damage, but it was just a little bit of an extra slap shall we say but another thing Russell did say was that both Grosjean and Raikkonen had had that roll around lap where they'd gone out to get the lap back which perhaps helped them with tyre prep maybe but yeah ultimately frustrating day for for Williams overall there, there is a little story that I don't think was seen so much I was watching the onboards on replay just before we recorded the podcast which is Roman Grosjean who finished 12th which was nothing to write home about he had a great final standing start and got up into the points but he was 60 points on downfall of downforce down in that race and the reason being that when there was that collision on the first lap, which I don't think was his fault, he was minding his own business on the right side when Gasly kind of inserted himself into the rapidly closing gap between the Haas and the and the Alpha. But it pitched him round. I mean, it damaged the left side of the uh, floor. Then it pitched him properly into the barrier. And so he sort of got on the radio and said, oh, idiots, the, all the usual stuff. And he said, oh, oh, I'll get going. I'll rejoin. Oh, there's... There's some grass to drive over to get onto the track, and then he's sort of driving around, thinking, "Actually, the car doesn't feel too doesn't feel too bad." I think he was expecting bits to be hanging off because he had been driven into and hit the wall, but didn't even come into the pits, so he, he carried on. But I think that was quite a good race drive from Grosjean. He's one of those strange drivers, isn't he, Mark? In that there are times when there's certain things wrong, and he seems to lose his head. But actually, he's got he does a really good line in in racing hobbled cars really well, which he's done for quite a long time. <laughs> it's unfortunate, isn't it, that he didn't um, he didn't get it he didn't get to uh, ever hang those twenty twelve and thirteen lotus seasons. Um, he didn't wasn't able to continue the trajectory he was on because <clears throat> he's a very very quick, um, devastatingly quick driver. Sometimes um, he just doesn't have that consistency, and he seems to have. Um, lost consistency as he's as his career's gone on. So yeah, it's always a bit of an enigma, um, and it's never a surprise when he turns up and is absolutely brilliant all weekend. And equally, it's not a surprise when he has a bit of a nightmare and looks mediocre and, or, or does something stupid or you know does something dangerous. It, you never know which Grosjean you're going to get in any given weekend. But um, this was one of his good ones, even though he finished a solid last. Yeah, just one of those things. He's had some cameos this year, Silverstone qualifying. I forget which race it was, one of the two Silverstones. He turned in a magnificent qualifying lap, just uh, almost out of nowhere. He's just one of those drivers who is uh, who is mercurial, isn't he? But uh, yeah, 
I think it's a bit of a shame that we're not going to see, I don't think we'll ever quite see the very best of him in Formula One, even though we did see hints of it with uh, Lotus absolutely good enough to win a to win Grand Prix, certainly, and, and came very, very close to doing it. But I, I just like the fact that he managed to just bring this car that that had been assaulted and then <laughs> flung into the wall and just, just kept going, didn't even come into the pits. That, that showed, uh, I think people underestimate the fact he does have, he does have, an amount of determination. He doesn't just wave the white flag all the time, which I think people think he does. He's one of those drivers who people look for his radio for when he's being a bit comedy and complainy. And they didn't they didn't really pick up on that fact. But sixty points of downforce, that's that's pretty major. He had a lot of floor damage. So uh yeah, that that's one of the better twelfth place and last places uh, he'll get in his career. Let's let's talk a little bit about Magello overall. This is the first time Formula One's raced at uh, raced at Magello. Do we think it was overall a success and would we like to see a little bit more what what do you think scott should we be going back to Magello because it was after all just a stopgap venue um i wasn't convinced i actually thought at the start of the weekend that it made sense as a one-off um there's a lot of novelty value about it that meant the expected ills that came with it were sort of palatable because it was special circumstances and just the sheer spectacle of Saturday was going to be brilliant and there were a lot of things about it that sort of just made up for the fact that the race was meant to be a bit rubbish but actually having experienced it I'm I'm still I'm pretty adamant that elements of this track contributed to that you know the nature of where the start finish line is means that if you do have a safety car and a restart it's probably going to get quite tasty um the first corner is brilliant for the start of a race because you've got a long run down there, so everyone's going to have a toe and it's going to go a bit mad. But then you've got quite a wide and awesomely profiled corner, which actually encourages a couple of different lines, which then feeds into a tight chicane. So you've got a recipe for it to all get jumbled up there. Um, and because the DRS zone started a bit later, I don't think we had too many offensive DRS drive-by passes. I think we actually had a couple where you had they had to properly contest the braking zone. And like Albon's move on Ricardo, for example, was a proper one where he had to really commit to it on the brakes on the outside. Um, so actually, I I actually thought it worked quite well. Um, I I would be more than happy for F1 to, to, to go back, but it won't, will it? Because no one's going to foot the bill for it. <laughs> well, I presume it's got a bit of a chance next year because next year is going to be a strange season as well. And even though they're working on what they've described as a normal conventional calendar, I'm sure there's going to be some limitations. So you never know. But yeah, this was a celebration of Ferrari. And there is always that question of, yeah, where does the, the money come from? But ultimately, Mark, if this is just if this is the only time that F1 goes to Magello, at least it'll be one of those memorable one-off visits, won't it? We're, we're always going to remember that uh, that crash and the, the two red flags. Only been a few races with with two uh, two standing restarts after after red flags, so uh, it'll go down. It'll go down in history, even though it's just another Mercedes one-two in this era. I'll be fondly remembered, I think, yeah, and because also just how fantastic the it was to see the cars, you know, being um, pushed so hard through these devastatingly fast corners, and just the beautiful part of the world that it's situated in, and um, just a very nice, slightly retro vibe. I mean, I, I was last year in in the 90s and um, it's exactly as I remember it so yeah I think it'll be very fondly remembered uh, if, if we if we never go back there again but I, I don't think it's uh, a given that we won't. Mark what how does it compare to um, how does it rank among the sort of rarer circuits you visited 
in an F1 context. Are there any other one-offs that you've done or or circuits in that have held an F1 race that have only done like a couple? I think really now that um, I mean, how many times did we go to Valencia? I don't recall. That wasn't a great track. I think it was five, but it, it felt, yeah. Valencia was one of those ones that there was lots of excitement about, but then it just it was just really disappointing when we... Uh, what about like Korea there? and India and those sort of places? Yeah, I, India was actually a really nice circuit. Um, it wasn't in the, the greatest part of India, um, but it was, um, yeah, that was a really nice circuit, very characterful. Um, the paddock facilities were a bit... Um, rudimentary <laughs> the, 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 the floors and the walls weren't necessarily straight but the track was great <laughs> um, the yeah well the career um it was all right again in, in a sort of funny hinterland setting um the circuit wasn't bad career has the makings of what i would consider to be the perfect head straw formula one venue because it's just sort of it's a, it's an interesting circuit and a place that nobody else really thinks much of. Everyone thinks it's probably going to be crap, and I can just imagine Ed absolutely loving it. Yeah, I really enjoyed the the Korean Grand Prix. I went to all of them. It was a shock. I, I just I just like the fact that they they announced it as this big thing. They were going to build uh, this basically. They were going to build a city around it, and there was going to be this great marina, and there was the street circuit section of it. It's going to have skyscrapers, and you get there, and it's sort of is a, a sort of swampy field. There's some some water and just nothing. It's just they didn't even they didn't even finish the circuit. It was that, it was just a, a real curiosity. But it, it is great when you have these these venues that are that are, are short lived and you know, like I said, Magello has never had a, a formula. It's never even held a non championship F one race. Um, so it, it's it's a nice little moment in uh, the circuit history, if if nothing else. But I hope we get another race there just to see what's. Uh, what happens when uh, when we go back? I, I don't imagine we'll have quite such a remarkable race, though. So uh, maybe we should be careful what we wish for in uh, in terms of that. And of course, we will have some other uh, some other new circuits. Uh, well, one other new circuit coming up this year in the uh, the Algarve circuit, and of course the uh, the Bahrain Outer track, which is a, an old venue but a, a new track configuration. So there's going to be a little bit more of that to come. And certainly, I like the fact that the teams are confronted with something they're not familiar with. Uh, well, thanks very much for listening. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. As usual, Mark Hughes's race analysis. My ever controversial driver ratings scott mitchell's currently forensically analyzing every throttle input and brake input and steering input of that pile up to to put something together so you can really understand everybody's role in it uh, tomorrow and you'll have all sorts of other interesting stuff check out our other podcasts including the gary anderson f1 show and bring back v10s and our youtube channel search for the race there loads of video stuff for you to watch there We've actually got a week off now after three races in three weekends and nine in 11, I think it is. We have got a championship. We have got nine races and we're going to be off to Sochi next, but we'll be back this time next week for a slightly more reflective podcast talking about some of the other goings on in Formula One rather than these rapid fire run of races. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10 
$10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.